0: This is PsyX, the systemic psychedelic podcast. To a new episode of our podcast. My name is Tanja Schumann, and today I will speak to Dr. Jerry Brown about the potential of psychoactive technologies to facilitate system change. Let me first give a little bit of background. Humans as a species are facing complex global challenges. At PsyX, we are exploring how psychoactive technologies can be the missing puzzle piece to address these challenges, especially when applied in the fields of leadership, innovation, and global systems. By psychoactive technologies we mean both endogenous means, such as meditation and breathwork, and exogenous means, such as psychedelic substances and neurostimulation. We are especially fascinated by psychedelics because of the recent upsurge of public attention and scientific research in relation to these compounds. Our guest today is Dr. Jerry Brown. Dr. Jerry Brown is an anthropologist, author and activist. From 1972 until 2014, he served as Founding Professor of Anthropology at Florida International University in Miami, where he designed and taught a course on entheogens and culture. The course examines the use of psychoactive plants by tribal and classical cultures, including ancient India and Greece, and discussing the discoveries of modern mind explorers, the psychonauts of the 20th century. Dr. Brown is co-author of Sacred Plants and the Gnostic Church. Speculations on Entheogen Use in Early Christian Ritual. Welcome to our podcast, and I'm very glad that you were able to join us today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Tanya, for the invitation. Hmm.
0: Um, And I would like to start with a question that is setting the scene for all of this. And I know that you have a very interesting and multifaceted background. So I would be curious to hear your perspective on what are some of the greatest challenges that we are facing as a species today and to what extent, to what extent is that related to needed system change in the world?
1: Certainly, um, the obviously overpopulation since, for example, every person in the US uses 250 more times the resources that a person in India does per year and the impact of overpopulation on everything from oil con- consumption, to fisheries, to agriculture, and how that feeds into climate change. Uh, there's no doubt about it that there are things like nuclear war and asteroid collision, but these are possible challenges, to ex- existential challenges that could either completely destroy civilization as the asteroids wiped out the dinosaurs, or undermine civilization as we know it. The two great challenges are obviously the current pandemic and climate change. The pandemic, uh, if we go back to the great uh, Spanish flu, which wiped out 50 million people, and some predictions on the coronavirus are that if it affected 60% of the global population, it could also wipe out 50 million people. But these are irregular, events that we, made, we have in the past developed vaccines for. Climate change, which is more a slow-moving tsunami rather than the fast-moving tsunami of the pandemic, um, threatens to undermine civilization as we know it. In Al Gore's book, um, An Inconvenient Truth, he pointed out that there's about a 600-foot swing between all ice and no ice related to sea, sea level. If the remaining ice melts, and we know it's melting very fast, both the sea ice and the glacial ice, it it would go up, sea level would rise 216 feet, or about three quarters of a kilometer. And since 90% of human civilization lives near oceans, it would wipe out New York, London, Beijing, and many other coastal cities. It would undermine agriculture, It would uh, devastate our ability to feed ourselves. It would lead to, you know, we've we've had trauma with hundreds of people migrating out of war-torn areas. It would lead to tens of millions of people becoming environmental refugees. It would lead to social disorder, social disruption, and in runaway climate change, almost take us off in the direction of a Vesuvian Venus-like atmosphere. So I see the most pressing and so far intractable challenge to be climate change along with the pandemics
0: Mm. yeah thanks for sharing that and now if we look at the way how western countries are approaching these issues and the kind of technologies that we are developing and the kind of approaches that we are applying what's your view on the potential of that and potentially also the dangers or the the limitations to that
1: Sure, certainly. Well, um, when President Kennedy asked Vendor von Braun, what will it take to get to the moon in 10 years? His response was very simple, the will to do it. And at that time when that decision was made, many of the technologies that were needed to launch, sustain, land on the moon, and re-enter were not even developed yet. And the NASA program, and and certainly in the Soviet former Soviet Union, led to the development of many spin-off technologies, including in photography and and long-distance photography, uh, telecommunications, computer analysis. Fortunately, all of the technologies that we need to combat climate change are available right now. We don't have to make any new inventions. Solar and wind, are far outpacing nuclear and fossil fuel in the marketplace is it where, where most of the growth is. We knew back in the 1970s that we could shift to 100% renewable economy and the energy genius, and Marie Lovins pointed that out in his uh, seminal article on the soft energy path and showing how this could be economically viable. But the incredible power of both the fossil fuel industry and the nuclear industry, and the 12 largest fossil fuel companies after they take care of every other expense they have, still have about $5 trillion. And you can buy a lot of lobbying power with that. So they have been able to retard and delay, and their strategy has been to try to keep this on the back burner, sometimes give lip service as until we get our asset out of the ground and use it Uh, we can now move and it has been demonstrated in germany and bus systems in in china in japan after uh, fukushima and in the united states we can move towards green hydrogen that's generated from solar or wind through electrolysis high electrolysis of water including seawater Uh, to strip out the electrons in H2O, strip out the hydrogen electron and run that electron through a fuel cell, the same kind of fuel cell that Toyota, Honda, Ford, GM has in their hydrogen cars today, and that scales up to trucks and into stationary fuel cells, which have already been demonstrated at megawatt, 10, 20, 30, 50 megawatt size. So we have that ability And if we place those in decentralized microgrids, the analogy here is we had the landlines for phones. (laughs) And it can only penetrate so far, building all this high voltage wires. But the cell phone is ubiquitous. And if we go to distributed hydrogen-based renewable energy systems, we can solve, replace fossil fuel. We can also use, look, technology got us into this problem, technology can get us out. We can also use the technology of earth shades, of launching earth shades into the atmosphere to reduce and block solar radiation, just like pulling down the shade in your house or turning the blinds, drops the temperature significantly. And also carbon carbon recapture and planting billions of trees. It is all within our grasp and uh, we have the technology to do it, It is really the politics and, and the energy power of the fossil fuel companies that's been holding us back.
0: Hmm. And if we move now from the technologies that we use in the West to some more ancient technologies and what often people don't even call technologies at all, which is spiritual practices such as meditation and breath work and um, prayer, as well as um, exogenous means such as psychedelic substances. Could you talk a bit about your view on the role of these in the system change, and maybe also talk a little bit about your own relationship to that, and um, yeah, sure. what that has brought to you with, in your life?
1: With pleasure. Uh, let me break that into two parts. The first part is that while a lot of the current discussion on psychedelics focuses either on the, the sort of mega dose, uh, spiritual seeking the divine, and The healing process where tremendous breakthroughs have been made in using psychedelics for dealing with depression and uh, also end-of-life anxiety and many other traumas post-traumatic stress disorder Uh, but one of the most fascinating discoveries made in psychedelics in the united states uh, shortly before they were banned was psychedelics for problem solving And Jim Fadiman, uh, who is one of the uh, 40 year old, 40 year long Harvard trained researchers in psychedelics along with Stanislav Grof and Albert Hoffman, I mean, a real giant in the field. He conducted along with an engineer at Stanford, uh, psychedelics for problem solving. What they did was they took mature scientists, chemists, mathematicians, architects who, were well established in their field and had been grappling with a problem for three months or more that they could not solve. They gave them a medium dose of mescaline, which is found in peyote, the alkaloid in peyote. Not the megadose and not the microdose, a very small non-perceptual dose. 81% of those scientists had a major breakthrough in solving the problem that they were working on. For example, an architect, he was taken visually through the whole history of architecture in an accelerated mental process. And after having presented 50 solutions to a client, all of which were rejected, out of this session, came up with a solution that was accepted. And so many of these solutions are commercializable. And just as Silicon Valley and other creative centers in the world are encouraging microdosing among their employees for creativity and focus. Um, I believe that psychedelics for problem solving could be used in helping to bring about breakthroughs that we need for problems on many levels. In fact, Jim Fadiman, after conducting this research, said, any nation that praises innovation and bans psychedelics is immoral and and stupid to boot. I mean, Steve Jobs loved LSD. In fact, in his biography, he says that taking LSD was one of the two or three most significant experiences in his life. It helped him to think different, the motto of Apple and the creation of Apple. And Francis Cricket Cambridge conceptualized the double helix of the DNA while under an LSD experiment. And they're not the only scientists who've done that. So this is a significant area uh, that can be where psychedelics can be used in scientific problem solving. The other one, obviously, uh, relates to mystical experiences in the world traditions. I'm an anthropologist by training. And in many places where you look around the world, psychedelics have been used in shamanism for healing, as a portal to the realm of the gods, as a way to encounter the ancestors, as a way for divination, as a way to bringing a benefit. The the, the shaman travels through the portal of psychedelics to the supernatural world and consorts with the gods and goddesses and brings back a benefit to society. We find this, oh my God, in so many places among the Mazatec of Mexico, um, Ayahuasca and the Amazonian people, Shipibo and Conibo, uh, Igbo game in the central African areas. So this has been fairly ubiquitous. My and my wife and co-author Julie's research have been uh, documenting psychedelics in Christian art, early medieval and renaissance Christian art, and asking the question, does psychedelics have, uh, does Christianity have a psychedelic history? And in our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History hallucinogens in Christianity we present original photographs of psychedelics in churches and cathedrals throughout Europe and the Middle East but we're not the only ones in a special issue of the journal of psychedelic studies on psychedelics in world history and religions it was shown that there are traces of psychedelics not only in Christianity in Judaism in Buddhism in Jainism and contemporary in in Mormonism what is fascinating here is that just as the mystical experience is key to religions that mystical experience of the saints of the divine of the divine inspiration of the encounter with the divine so mystical experience is turning out to be a key to psychedelic assisted
0: psychotherapy that's pretty profound and I mean good examples of people that have already gone through those experiences and have actually made changes um I would also be curious if you're um, open to share your personal story with psychedelics and whether they had an impact on your own professional career
1: oh absolutely Uh, without a doubt I mean Julie and I are, are children of the 60s and we had our initial psychedelic experiences back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I, my psychedelic experiences, I could count on two hands, but they have been so powerful and significant that I've rarely had to go back to the psychedelic teachers, uh, mushrooms, LSD, ayahuasca, unless I had a reason or was called or the situation kind of called for it. Um, so. I have experienced psychedelics with my wife, Julie, that helped me uh, have the courage to overcome fear and choose love, uh, which we had a profound experience on LSD where our beings completely merged together and spiraled up into the heavens. There was like not one iota of resistance between us. Um, I've had an experience with ayahuasca where uh, and, and this may sound uh, bizarre to people, but when I retired from the United States and moved to Europe uh, to spend more time with my wife and to pursue our psychedelic research interests, I went into a profound nine-month depression. And I'm not a depressed person. And moving away from the kind of prestige and position and being Dr. Brown in the United States and doing this anti-nuclear work, for which we received a lot of kudos. Uh, we worked with many other groups. I just felt like I was going to oblivion, that I, I, my ego did not want to let go of that. And I was begging Julie to go back. And she said, Jerry, this is our time. We and our friends tried everything, psychiatrists. I lost 22 pounds. I couldn't sleep at night and I loved to sleep and these tapes, these destructive tapes were running through my, and I was afraid that I was destroying myself and my relationship. Uh, uh, Anti-psychotics did not work. Um, Meditation did not work. Positive imagery tapes did not work. Emotional freedom technique did not work. Nothing worked until I found an ayahuasca center not far from where we're living. And I went there, and in a four-hour mystical ayahuasca experience, I saw my ego, that I was a prisoner of my ego, and my ego shattered like glass bars on a prison and fell away. I completely understood, because I've been completely self-centered in my ayahuasca, in my depression, what I was doing to my beloved wife. And lastly, I felt I was possessed and the possession took the form of a a long black snake that was inside of me and I literally, in the hallucination of the ayahuasca experience, pulled it out and threw it away. The next day when I came home, I woke up singing again and it's never returned. So there is no doubt in my mind that ayahuasca and other psychedelics can be helpful or seminal in treatment resistant depression and other kinds of experiences. And lastly, and, and I won't go into it because I don't know if we have time, but uh, back in 1979, I had a, an incredible guided experience with magic mushrooms that led me, that, that we're only, I can only understand it as a divine voice that took me into 40 years of work against nuclear power and on behalf of renewable energy so psychedelics for conquering fear and choosing love for passion and purpose and for overcoming depression have been very uh, significant in my life and and having had oh uh, my first experience of psychedelics high in the with the rainbow family gathering in the Rockies in the United States um, was terrifying it wasn't like dr. Albert Hoffman where I thought I was dying but I felt like I had slipped into a Carlos Castaneda-like world of powers and opposing forces that was very frightening. And out of that, being an anthropology professor, I decided to design and teach a course on hallucinogens and culture, which I did at my university, Florida International University in Miami, where I taught from 1972 till I retired in 2014. And out of that course came the discovery of a psychedelic mushroom in 2006 in Roslyn Chapel in Scotland, a Catholic church, that led us to on the path to questioning, does Christianity have a psychedelic history, and to the research that's reported in our book. Hmm.
0: Wow, some really powerful experiences. Um, And there are some aspects to the experiences that you talked about in your own life and also what you said earlier about that the one thing that's really needed to make change is the will to make these changes. And that brings me to think about current leaders in the world and about their position with regards to making decisions that have an impact of, you know, either choosing the technologies that can fight climate change or sticking with with the technologies that we're currently using. Do you have any specific thoughts on the potential of psychedelics as well as other psychoactive technologies um, specifically in relation to leadership?
1: Um, I think it can have a great deal of role. However, when you are dealing with entrenched, egomaniacal leadership, as we've seen today in certain places of the world. Um, Unless they were willing and chose the will to do it to undergo uh, psychedelic psychotherapy, uh, I don't think that's going to be possible. Uh, On the other hand, if they chose to explore that and it became mainstream enough, which I think it will in time, Um, Obviously we see that the level where it can be helpful is at the personal level in terms of personal healing. And one of the most amazing things that I've come across in in researching and reading uh, that's going on at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine uh, in Maryland in the United States where they've been conducting psychedelic research for psychotherapy for decades now, is the statement made by Roland Griffiths, the grandfather of the psychedelic renaissance, saying that in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, we find that the intensity of the mystical experience is directly related to the effectiveness of the therapy. So here we have sort of fascinating, not shamans, but you might call them white coat shamans, uh, scientists in the lab, being able to predictably recreate with significant doses, uh, maybe 22 to 30 grams per 70 kilograms of, of body weight of psilocybin, um, predictable mystical experience. And we know as a fact that psychedelics can re- create a mystical experience. This was proven back in 1962 in a piece of research called The Miracle of Marsh Chapel. Uh, done among um, Protestant divinity students one group given the psychedelic the other group given a placebo b12 niacin and nine out of the ten divinity students had a mystical or religious experience and 25 years later in a follow-up study done by Rick Doblin for his dissertation and Rick is the world-famous founder of um, uh, maps multidisciplinary Association for psychedelic studies he saw that These subjects, he found seven of the nine people in that original Miracle of Mars Chapel experiment, that it was still the most or one of the most significant experiences in their life. So it's fast acting and it's long lasting. And we've seen this uh, documented for psilocybin with depression, for psilocybin and MDMA, uh, with end of, you know, dealing with end of life anxiety, with post traumatic stress disorder so it is really an incredible merging of religion and science that we're seeing where we can at the at the individual level see psychedelics being transformational and dealing with and uh, alleviating otherwise treatment resistant conditions this is what's driving the current psychedelic renaissance uh which is uh definitely having a profound impact on shifting the image and role of psychedelics in society. And I think someday in the not too too distant future, we're going to see psychedelic legal, psychedelic assisted therapy centers. Definitely Mm. in the United States and Europe.
0: Mm. Yeah. And then when we look at um, another layer of this entire topic, um, and I think that you would probably have some interesting insights being an anthropologist and that's the level of community and culture and there are various communities and cultures related to psychoactive technologies you have for example the buddhist cultures that are holding the meditation or you have the shamanic cultures that are holding the the, for example ayahuasca or the second day renaissance which is currently holding the, the current research that's going on do you have thoughts on any of these communities and cultures and their impact potentially on the broader issues that we've discussed early on in this interview.
1: Very much so, as as Gandhi, you know, one of the world's great nonviolent change leaders said, be the change you want to see in the world. So um, as more and more people find their way for either personal growth, creativity, spirituality, Uh, deepening relationships, solving relationship problems, or purely exploration in a meditation practice or yoga practice, or want to take their lives more in the direction of service, which I consider to be uh, a form of meditation in action, that as more and more people find their way, and I see these uh, as spokes that lead on a wheel, that lead to the same center, which is an understanding that we are really unified. We think we're individuals, but we're all leaves on the great tree of life. And as the pandemic has shown us quite dramatically, that that we need a unified approach in both preventing the futures, in finding the solution, and in dealing with the crisis. And the same thing is essential for dealing with the crisis of climate change. So I believe that as humanity, and I think this is more profound than just some marginal people throughout the ages uh, who took a Siddhartha-like path, I think this is getting more and more widespread. We see in the United States in the Pew Research Center where 20 plus percent of people and over 30 percent of youth say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And they're seeking for deeper meaning in life that takes them to these psychoactive practices that you you talk about. Julie and I are completely amazed having come as children of the 60s where psychedelics were passed around in small groups of friends and you were very much on your own to find your own way uh, to them and with them or maybe in ritual gatherings uh, like early Burning Man kind of events to see the second coming of psychedelics that it's had today uh, brought about by the, the very valid research that's happening, and not only in Johns Hopkins, but at Imperial College in London and other places. So we are very encouraged that psychedelics, yoga, meditation, inward seeking may lead masses and masses of people to the kind of transformation that can bring about Global transformation uh, that we need for humanity.
0: Hmm. And um, one more thing that would interest me, because you talked a lot about studies that were proving various of these effects of psychedelics. Now, if we look at the science that's being done today at Johns Hopkins, at Imperial College, and also a variety of other universities, and the focus of the research, do you have any thoughts on? Um, if that's really tapping into the full potential of research that could be done on the topic, or do you see any areas of research where you're like, well, somebody got to look at this now?
1: Well, for example, let me make two observations about that, Um, microdosing. The microdosing research is fairly new. Albert Hoffman, who lived to 102, microdosed in the last years of his life. But out of coming out of the 60s and 70s, everyone was looking for the God particle, the, the divine experience, the megadose that um, gurus and, and leaders were promising. So Jim Fatiman, who I've mentioned before, has conducted a global study on the effects of microdosing. And he calls this search rather than research. It's not controlled research. But he has received reports from thousands of people all over the world who microdosed on psilocybin or LSD, and this is taking, you know, uh, ten, you know, of a gram of LSD or a few, you know, grams of psilocybin. It is not hallucinogenic, it is not mind altering, but it has led to one the alleviation of suffering and well-being, certain people have reported that they've stopped stuttering. Women have reported that they've reduced menstrual cramps and on and on, Uh, memory recall for the elderly. So what Jim has done is he's collated this information and you can find it on his website, microdosingpsychedelics.com, microdosingpsychedelics.com. And he uses that to point researchers to design more rigorous research to pick up on these promising avenues. If, as some have said, that psychedelics is to the mind, what the microscope was to biology, what the telescope is to astronomy, we're just on the shore of this vast ocean of possibility. I believe we've just dipped our toe in. And now that the restrictions on research are lifting, uh, I think that, that just as the great Hubble telescopes and others have made this one of the most exciting times to be in astrophysics. Similarly, we're going to see research that has been started before, now verified, and research that we can't even imagine uh, being undertaken and carried out as psychedelic research becomes more well-established and well-funded. The other observation, which is maybe more a, a more a broader observation, is that Stanislav Groff, the founder of LSD psychotherapy, um, who has guided more LSD psychotherapy trips than anyone in the world made this observation out of his research, and I'd like to quote him he says. I now firmly believe that consciousness is more than an accidental byproduct of the neurophysiological and biochemical processes that take place in the human brain. I see consciousness and the human psyche as expressions and reflections of a cosmic intelligence that pervades the entire universe and all of existence. And I think that as we come to experience and embrace that, that that will be world-changing as well.
0: Mm, Yeah, yeah, very interesting points, thanks. Um, I have, you know, as we come to the end of our interview, one more question, which is more like a spontaneous association, I would say. So everybody of us faces certain complexities or challenges in life. And I'd be just curious to hear for you personally what is the biggest complexity the biggest challenge that you would be most motivated to solve at this point in your life?
1: Well I think on a global level bringing about and forging the kind of consensus and political will that's needed both to prevent future pandemics and to address climate change is certainly um, the greatest challenge that many of us can contribute to in the public realm, on the global realm, in the political arena. Uh, I think on a personal level, uh, coming out of a battleground as a family, as many of us have done, uh, I found it very hard to love myself and to love others in relationship. And I am happily married now in my second marriage with my beloved wife for 38 years. But because it was only through psychedelics that I was able to overcome the traumas that I had experienced in childhood that prevented me from being in a loving relationship. And I think as the song goes, everyone knows love's the greatest gift of all. That self-love and loving relationships with a significant other and friends is the, is the gold ring on the planet. Without love, the earth is a, t- a tomb, as the poet said. So I think that people who can, and I don't see a lot of people in the psychedelic community talking about this, but for us in the 60s, it was like breaking through the gray flannel suit and the re- Rigidness of society, of the of the organization man, and the lockstep education to really loving and embracing each other, maybe a little too much in community. Um, and I think that um, psychedelics and MDMA has proven to be an incredible tool in relationship and couples counseling. So I think that that this can be a very promising area of um, coming back. Uh, to love in ourselves and of others Uh, and psychedelics can be not the only tool but definitely a tool in that area.
0: Mm, Wow, that's a very profound, profound notion to end this interview with and I'm... Well,
1: thank you for asking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and thank you so much for also sharing so openly about your own experiences and the impact that psychedelics had on yourself and also your relationship. And yeah, so this is now the end of our little interview thank you again and i'm wishing you My all pleasure the thanks
1: okay thanks for having me
0: thank you for listening to psyx the systemic psychedelic podcast